God, as you are having a seat, pray with me. Pray with me. Pray for me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for gathering us like, I don't know, like a good shepherd would gather his sheep. And I thank you this morning for our regulars, our family, our body, also visitors, new folks, and family in from out of town. Jesus, we come in your name, calling upon the promises of God the Father and asking, Holy Spirit, that you would unite us to Christ, remind us that we are hidden in Christ. And may this word be good food to us. May this word be like the best Christmas enchiladas ever. Just such good food to our souls, that there's good news because we want to see you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So studying this passage this week, and it reminded me of a, a song from the early 2000s. I, I screwed up so bad with my last song, I figured I'd try another one. Uh, this one is from Charlie Hall, and the song is called One Thing. He's a worship leader, contemporary of you know, Chris Tomlin in the early 2000s. The song starts like this, single-minded, wholehearted, one thing I ask. Single-minded, wholehearted, just one thing that I ask, that I may gaze upon your beauty, O Lord, that I may seek your holy face, that I may know you in an intimate way and follow after you all my days. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, not might, not could, not might could, they shall see God. And as I was studying this text this week, and as usual, you know, there's joy, there's conviction. I just got to thinking, I mean, who doesn't want to see God? In fact, I've, you know, I've had a lot of good long conversations with buddies of mine that are, you know, maybe they're agnostic or atheist or whatever, and they're just like, man, if God would just show up, we'd be good. Which, by the way, isn't true. Evidence exhibit A, the Bible. Um, but it feels that way, right? If I could just see God, I, I want to see God. Or, you know, maybe in the midst of pain, frustration, loss, grief, pandemic, whiplash, the news cycle, weariness. Anyone feeling just a little weary right now? Simultaneously fighting against fear and over it, but not? Who doesn't want to see God? And to be seen by God, to see God in his glory, to see God goodly or rightly, not in condemnation, not condemned by our, our own brokenness, our own sin, our own failures and faults, but in his love, in the fullness of his love in the face of Christ. Who doesn't want to see God? Who doesn't want to see God seeing them with eyes of just true mercy and faithfulness to you, not abstractly a person or a Christian, but to you, by name you? The same you that, you know, minutes ago or days ago or a couple nights ago could have really cared less and was doing your own thing, but now before his face, as it were, in a, in a beatific vision, in and through Christ to be fully known and fully loved. This is the predicament of all human beings. 
right? Because sin is in the world. That, that's why things are broken, right? It's not because we don't have enough money. It's not because we throw out enough food every year in this country to feed the world. And it's not because we don't have enough education. Thank you, Wikipedia. We have sufficient supplies of all these quantity things, but the quality of a new heart, when the heart is broken, when the heart is sick with sin, when, as Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun, that's the problem. Adam in the garden decides he's going to eat the fruit of the tree. He's going to declare that I can, you know, I can make my own way here. I'll decide what's good and what's evil. How's that worked out for mankind? Poorly. He was in a state of being fully known and fully loved, and all of a sudden he's, he's naked and he's ashamed. And he does what we all do. Can we just be honest about it? It's church. This is the safe space of honesty. We try to cover it up with a fig leaf, or we try to run and hide from God, or perhaps most insidious, Adam, oh Adam, you man of men, we pass the blame. But to see God and know that you're loved, that you're forgiven, that because of God and because of what he's done and how he's made you and who you are in him, you're enough to be truly whole. That's where all this is going, by the way. That's why Christians gather to worship and rehear the gospel week after week because you never graduate from it. You may pray the prayer, you may get saved, but the gospel is for Christians every week so that we can be drawn out of this craziness, this world, and brought in here so that God can just in a little way make all things new and feed us by his word and feed us at his table and remind us, here's where this is going. You will one day be with me in the new heavens and the new earth. All will be made right. Justice will flow and rain down on the earth and you will be mine, and you will be whole, fully known, and fully loved. Believe it or not, this is exactly the context of the Sermon on the Mount. All of that longing, all of that Advent longing and desire to see God, to see God show up and do what God had promised to do. That, that's the backdrop for the Jews of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, different groups of Jews were handling that differently. The, the Essenes had gone down south. They were in the desert. And they were going to be the purest of all pure ones. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, they were going to do like 15 ritual washings a day to the point that their skin was in peril, I'm sure. Then you had the, the Sadducees, and they were kind of circled up a little bit with Rome, a little bit with Herod, playing the game, very political. That's how they were going to procure and secure the power they needed to usher in the kingdom. Then, of course, you have the Zealots, those who were, you know, sort of like the UFC fighters of the, uh, the old Jewish days. They were going to go out into the wilderness. They were going to train. They were going to get ready so that when the time came, when Messiah came, they could be ready to go with Messiah and charge the temple and overthrow the Romans. And then, of course, the Pharisees, who were much more religious than we are, much better people, much more pure. I mean, you do like Four and a half good deeds a day, pin a rose on your nose. These guys were, they followed the law, they added to the law, they were going to do every little thing they could to be righteous and pure. Because then Yahweh in his mercy would look down upon Israel and say, aha, finally you've obeyed. You've, you've done enough, you've been enough, and now I'm ready to come and send the one. This is all the Jews wanted, was to see God. It's all that every human being wants is to see God. They'd been waiting. They'd been so patient. 
Does anyone out here struggle with patience? Is it just me? Am I the only one? <laughs> 400 years of silence since the closing of the Old Testament canon through the prophet Malachi. He's going to come. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. That's a picture of the garden, of the new heavens and the new earth. Reconciliation, 400 years they've been waiting in silence. And they've been passed off from one group to the next. Alexander the Great, the Hellenists, the Seleucids, and eventually they end up after the Ptolemies under the oppression of Rome. The worst one yet, because Rome, it was the most insidious oppression. It was that kind of like subtle, jab you right in the heart kind of racism. Oh, you can have your little religion, go ahead. You know, the peace of Rome. But don't forget you're just slaves. And dare you act up will prove the point with swiftness. The hearts of the Jews were crying out to see God show up, see us, see our need, remember us, save us. It's the very reason we sing the Advent songs we do. Come, oh come, God with us, Emmanuel. We need you. God, if you're real, be here, be with us, show up, help. It's almost as if if we could really be with God before the face of God, quorum Deo, before God's face, seeing him, being seen by him. If we could be there, we could face anything. We could face the world. We could face our sadness. We could face our fears, the fears that are flying at us all the time like little darts, little arrows from the evil one. We could face loss and grief, even death. If only we could see him. And yet, as we know, because we're human beings, we do struggle to see that which we long to see. It feels dark, or to use the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, it feels dim. Even those of us in Christ are often striving because we're not superhuman. Only Jesus is the God-man, and you're still here in this world with the challenges and circumstances of this world, constantly attempting to turn off the lights. So Paul says, we see through a mirror dimly now. Someday, someday, praise the Lord, we are going to see face to face. All this reminded me of a short story by Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was a master of short stories, and he wrote this one for Esquire magazine in 1936. Its original title was The Horns of the Bull about a young man longing to be a matador in the big, bustling city of Madrid. And no, I don't mean that ghetto little place down the road. (laughs) Madrid, Spain, the real Madrid. Set during the Spanish Civil War. Oppression, pain, longing. The story features a young waiter named Paco. P-A-C-O, Paco, a very common Spanish name at the time. And Paco aspires to one day be a matador. Like the strong, wealthy men he serves at his restaurant. Paco, the reader learns, ran away from home. He has a pain and a brokenness in his heart, an alienation. He ran away from home after a bitter falling out with his father. And as the story progresses and this father wound is manifest, we learn that this broken relationship actually informs his inability to perform 
It informs his fears, his longings, and his unmet aspirations. We will return to Paco later. But for now, suffice it to say, in this now and not yet, now the kingdom of God is breaking in through Christ. Not yet has it been fully realized and consummated. In this now and not yet, all image bearers, all human beings are like those lost children, alienated and blinded, having had a deep falling out with their true father. It's dark sometimes. And the flip side of this coin is no help to us at all. And that is where God sometimes seems silent and distant and unseen. The works of the devil are extremely obvious. Again, I just, I, I beg the question to us. I mean, why? Why can't we just get it right? Why can't we all just get along? The works of the evil one are obvious and they're everywhere. What's more, in years past, you would perhaps know the issues of your tribe or your city or perhaps even your region, but now with the click of the button, we see all the world's troubles everywhere at once and in real time. So that one scholar has referred to our day as one of perpetual micro-traumas. Our heart gets no rest, and so we all have compassion fatigue, which in us perpetuates a low-grade anxiety and a cycle of fear that many of us find it very difficult to break out of. Because what are you going to do? Throw your phone out the window? Well, then you have, you have no alarm clock. You have, you're basically helpless with that. Historically, uh, philosophers have referred to this as a problem of evil. It used to be a logical problem of evil, okay? So, you know, when I was in philosophy class, it was a logical problem. If God is all good and all powerful, there's evil in the world, then how do we make sense out of God? Well, they don't really deal with the problem in that way anymore because it's not a logical or a rational problem. It's not math. The syllogism actually adds up, especially for Christian theism, simply based on these terms. God is God and has a morally sufficient reason that he knows and is allowed to have for the evil that he ordains or allows. It's no longer a logical problem, but that has done nothing to deal with what is now the empirical problem of evil. That is, the data points that we observe by sight and sense as we're out in the world. If God is good and he's all-powerful, it feels like there's too much pain in the world. And maybe it doesn't feel like that to you, but can I just commend to us in the spirit of joy and happiness and hope that we have a lot of people around us that we love, our neighbors and our friends. They're not our projects. You cannot save them. All we can do is love them. Who may actually feel that way? Because, man, I just... Uh, I want to be careful with this because I, I don't want to ever do caricatures, but, man, if there's, no, if there's no God, if there is no God who knows, who cares, who enters in to the brokenness to actually do something about it, if truly all you just get is this one life and what you can make for yourself out of your own power and pleasure, sadness. 
And yet, ironically, human beings, instead of trying to see God as their help and, and the very answer to these problems on his terms, are often people trying to be God on their terms. We're lost. Not only can we not see, but we're like those who have put our head down on the baseball bat and spun around 15 times. Interestingly, the way that this man manifests itself in the world is through a variety of coping mechanisms in all these little groups and organizations that people want to cling to for some sense of security and control, which is why those groups always have to them a deep religious fervor. If you're in, you're in. If you play by our rules, you're in. If you're on our side of the aisle, you're in. And the second you're not in, you're out. It's a little religion. Little rules and boundary markers that have you in, and the second you're not in, you're canceled. And yet our deep longing remains to see God, to be seen by God in his love. C.S. Lewis reminds us that, that the very image of God on the heart of man, where the law is written on the heart, means that each human being deep in their soul has what Lewis refers to as whispers of the garden. We know this is not the way it should be. And we long to get back. But it's dark. And we're lost. Perhaps this is why in his 1946 work, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, who was a recent survivor of the Holocaust, said that the only hope that mankind has for meaning is this, that he would be anchored in a personal, eternal purpose with objective meaning. Because whenever you give any few people too much power or pursuit of pleasure, it always ends in destruction. Who doesn't want to see God? Single-minded, wholehearted. One thing we ask, that we could gaze upon your beauty, O oh Lord. If we could gaze upon your beauty, we could face anything. And so to that end, I think this beatitude gives us, at Christmas, on this final Sunday of Advent, two gifts. Help and hope. Help and hope. Two gifts. The first gift is God's help. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. So how are we doing with those pure hearts? I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I really struggled with, with this text this week. Maybe I should have borrowed a few commentaries from John. I don't know. But I was just, you know, there's one sense to it in which, well, I mean, can't you have some purity of heart? I mean, why would Jesus say that if, it's, if there's no way for you to be pure in heart at all? Is it just completely hopeless without, you know, his intervening grace? And yet the, the deeper I thought into this question, the more my own heart this week was revealed. And I went through my normal ups and downs. Man, God, I want to see you, but geez, the more I reflect on my own heart, the more I'm actually honest and exposed and vulnerable to not only the truth and love, but the power and glory of God through his word. Whoa, this heart is exposed. This heart's a quagmire. On the one hand, I'm doing nice things for nice people. And on the other hand, I'm, you know, cursing people to eternal damnation on Sirius. And yet even trying to go a half a day doing the right thing with a pure heart seemed impossible. And so we need this help. We need heart help. We need a God who not only demands a pure heart, but provides a pure heart. We know this is true because the very definition of what pure in heart is. 
Again, purity isn't isn't merely instantiating good deeds. That is, I did eight good deeds that outweighed my six bad deeds and that, you know, 1,432 weird thoughts that I had. Purity means to truly reflect God's holiness and character in the world and to do it from the heart, which is the center of being. So not to do it half-heartedly, not to do it externally, or to put it more pointedly, not to do it religiously. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, put it this way, that purity of heart is to will one thing. And if you're like me, and so often your will is torn between two things, then impurity is on full display. It seemed, as I studied, like an impossibly high standard. But who am I to make God lower? Which, by the way, is precisely the thing I'm so often tempted to do to be able to deal with these beatitudes. But no, the standard is high because God is high. Simply put, the pure in heart are those who pursue God's righteous ways with their whole being in the world. Those who do and long to do and intend to do and fully will to do the first and second great commandments, to love God with all they are and to love their neighbor as themselves. And to me, that's synonymous with being undone. (laughs) And the reason why is because of our heart problems. You see, volition isn't our challenge. We do indeed exercise our will. And so often we do will one thing. The problem is, isn't that we will one thing, but that we so often will the wrong thing. And so let the words of the prophet Jeremiah wash over you. Let God wash you, his bride, with his word. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why is it that we're up one day and down the next and back again? The diagnosis of the scriptures is that our condition, apart from God's help, ultimately, ultimately, is one of self-love before all other loves. That our heart, the center of our being and affections, has mismanaged and misaligned affections that ultimately we love ourselves the most. And guess what? I don't really like that. Do you? Merry Christmas. Thanks for coming to church. I don't really like that. As I was studying it this week, I didn't like it. I even tried to work around it. I mean, certainly there's a sense in which Jesus is telling these people, these Jews, these crowds, like, you can do it. Just be, just be pure in heart. You'll see God. But do you realize how cruel that would have been for them? Look, so many other religious people are better than you people. Do you understand? So many other religions demand so much more than I see you people and me doing. To say nothing of the, of the nice people up in Minnesota who, who basically smoke us when it comes to general external goodness. Jesus is talking to some of the most religious people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. If his command to them was, try a little harder, that's basically the definition of cruelty. It can't be that. And yet, what is it? How do we get there? And here, I think we need to be aware of two things. Our first tendency, which is to go to our own goodness, 
to justify ourselves just like Adam in the garden. It's in all of us. To go to our own goodness, our own sense of purity, to look to God and say, I'm not that bad, right? And yet Jesus mercifully, because on the one hand, he's not going to be cruel and say, try harder. On the other hand, he's not going to be like a cruel doctor and go, oh, you have cancer, but I'm not going to tell you. Jesus mercifully says, no, that's pride. (laughs) In fact, this is exactly what he's confronting in this text. In Matthew chapter 6, if you'll remember, Jesus goes through a variety of ways that the Jews understood themselves as pure and righteous before God. Tithing, ritual washing, prayer. And he's basically saying to these folks, That's, those are all good things. But those aren't good things that get you to God. No, it's God who must get to you. It's the whole point of this text. And it reveals our second tendency, which is simply to lower the bar to compare ourselves to others. Sometimes I don't feel like a very good person, but then I look around the room and go, actually, I'm pretty good. Thank you. That's good. I feel good. Perfection and holiness can seem like too much, feel unfair. My sight, my standard, my evaluation of goodness is sufficient. And yet God isn't like us. God doesn't see the outward appearance. He sees the heart. Love that wonderful story of Saul and David, right? Saul's good looking. He's a leader. He's tall. He's got muscles. You know, David is just this little shepherd boy. No one would pick David. No one would pick David as your king, as your leader. Yeah, right. And what does Samuel tell us? That that man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. So all this brings us simply to the question about who then? Who can be pure in heart that they might see God? Or as Psalm 24 puts it, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus is not cruel. He's not a bad doctor. So simultaneously, he is honest with us about the diagnosis while not forcing us to be the ones who perform surgery on ourselves to save ourselves. It's for exactly this reason that Jesus provokes the questions in this beatitude that they might realize, that we might realize, that it's all dependence on his grace. It's all dependence on his grace. We need help to be pure in heart, and that help is offered to us in Christ. This leads us to great hope. Christmas time really should be a time of hope for us. Whatever's going on in your life, and I don't even know, there's some serious things going on in some of your lives, really serious. There's old wounds that still haven't healed. There's, man, we we don't even need to go out on the list. (laughs) To all of that, God looks upon us and says, do you want to see me? Emmanuel, do you want to see me? Get into my word to find the word, the word of God, Jesus himself, Let the Spirit connect you to that word and hear this good news. God is with you. God has come. He's taken on flesh. He has stooped down. He has come into the low place. He's removed his royal robes. He's emptied himself of his riches and his power that he might become nothing and cursed and on a cross to lift us up. This is the great hope of Christmas, of the last Sunday of Advent, that Jesus knows that only God is pure. And yet the very beatitude itself leads us 
to what it presupposes. That we not only need a little more religion or do-gooding, but a sovereign savior to raise us from the dead. That all of our longings aren't met by, you know, a meticulous list of self-help to-dos, but the miracle of God sending his son as a baby into the dirt, into the world, into the dust, to raise up dust from the ground for the glory of God. We, you know, you guys have heard what WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Some of you probably still have a few of those bracelets hidden deep in a drawer. That's fine. What about WWJB? Maybe not what would Jesus do, but where would Jesus be? You see, when Jesus came down to earth, he didn't despise the impure and the broken and the needy and those who had nothing but knew that they had need. In fact, in his purity and perfection, he moved toward them. And here's what's so miraculous, because only the Spirit of God can do this. Only God in the temple could do this before Christ, but Christ is the temple. Now in his purity, in his being God, as he moves toward the impure, what happens? He makes them pure. And so I asked the question, you know, if you were to maybe just close your eyes for a second or imagine this, if you were to just imagine for a second the face of Jesus looking at you, what would that face be? You know, is Jesus looking at you and just kind of grimacing like, oh, you're almost good enough? Ah, yeah, there's, you know, a couple good things, a couple bad things. I know what you did last summer, you know, uh, next week's a new week, we'll do better. Is it, you know, is it sort of a faint, I don't know about you? Or worse, is it the arms crossed? You know, is it the alienation from the family and the father? Is it the, you know, yeah, you, you messed up. And you need to keep trying because you're not quite enough. And you've done a lot, and it is enough, but it's just not quite enough enough. Or do you see the face of Christ for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit seeing you with true delight and love and joy and invitation? And again, not some abstract or ambiguous you out there in the ether, unknown and impersonal in the universe, but a personable God who not only knows you, but knows your name and your needs and all the impurities and has come to make you pure has come to answer the very question that our hearts are longing to have answered. God, we want to see you. Save us. Help us. Remember us. Forgive us. This is what God does about any and all problems of evil. He doesn't stand back. He doesn't stand cold and frustrated and perturbed at the failures that he observes he jumps right in. It's the very story of the cross. That God doesn't stand over humanity in condemnation, expecting more, but knowing humanity's deep and broken need, he jumps right in and does what no man but the God-man could do. This brings us back to Paco. Remember our buddy Paco? Once more, he was a waiter in Madrid, longing to be a matador, but it had a bitter, bitter falling out with his father. 
In that way, like us, like all the sons and daughters of Adam, this brokenness, this impurity, this blindness and inability to see informed his fears and unmet aspirations. But Paco's father, Paco's father is determined to find his lost but loved child and bring him back home. So here's a glimpse. Here's a glimpse of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and to me by faith, not by works, empty-handed. Here's a glimpse. The father is determined to find his lost but loved child and bring him back home. After combing the streets and storefronts of Madrid to no avail, Paco's father, longing to see his son, grows desperate. And so he spares no expense. What would you do to find your child that you loved? He spares no expense taking out a full-page advertisement in the newspaper. The ad is as plain and clear as a street sign. And the ad simply reads, in all capital letters, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. When Paco's father arrives at the hotel plaza at noon on Tuesday, he cannot believe his eyes. A squadron of police officers has been dispatched there to control a crowd of nearly a thousand young men. All named Paco, all of them looking to reconcile with their father. All of them needed to hear, long desperately to hear, just to see and hear, all is forgiven. And because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what we can hear and can see in the eyes of our Father to us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good and merciful and kind to us. Because here we are, once again, some of us here, maybe we've never trusted in you and this is all... I don't know, sounds kind of crazy. You've invited us in to hear good news. Not the news of try harder in religion. Not the news of, you know, being an overcomer and making a life for yourself. Lord, those, both of those roads lead off a cliff. We know. We know because we've walked off that cliff and we're bruised and, and we're bloodied and we're often found at the bottom. And yet here, here you've come to the bottom to lift us up by your cross and by your resurrection to forgive and to place upon our hearts the promise that in your purity, you will make all things new. So Jesus, I pray that we would feast upon the good news we have heard and the good news that is offered for us at this table. Lord, we come by faith. We didn't set this table up. We didn't prepare this food. And we come with nothing in our hands, which is a beautiful picture of exactly how you want to meet us with your grace. All we know, Lord, is, is we want to see you. And yet left to the purity of our own hearts and our own sight, it's dark and we're lost. So Jesus, would you embrace us? Would you not only bring us into your home, but around your table as weak and weary travelers, would you feed us this heavenly food? 
Would you let us hear the words as we gaze upon your face? All is forgiven. Amen.